Welcome to Let's Finally Watch This, a podcast for casual movie fans who have always meant to watch classic movies. I'm your host, Nick Hayden. And I am the other host, Timothy Deal. And we are entering 1972. 1972. This is our sixth episode, Nick. Yes, I know. We're making our way through the decades. We are indeed. We're almost to uh, when we were alive. That's right. We're at 72. This, that means this is 50 years Yes. Yes. I had to do my math right. Yeah, 50 years ago. Wow. It's still a long time ago. I know. It's it's very strange. Like, I remember exploring libraries and finding books from the 70s and feeling like it's like that decade you, you, know, you and I just missed, essentially. Yes. So the fact that that decade we just missed was now 50 years ago. Doesn't it, sound right. It doesn't sound right no, at all. No. Yeah. The year is 1972, and this week we're talking about The Poseidon Adventure. A disaster movie. So uh, strap up your life jacket. Very much a switch from, I guess, uh, last episode, we were all in the desert. Now we're all in the water. That's true. That's a funny point. So, <laughs> a complete change of scenery. And other things as well. Yes. But we'll get to that. So, Tim, in 1972, what's happening in the film, in the world? There's got to be a morning after If we can hold on through the night We have a chance to find the sunshine. Let's keep on looking for the light. Well, we just got through the 1960s, and you might say the United States went through a lot during that decade. Yes. There was the JFK assassination, the civil rights movements, Martin Luther King Jr. assassination, Vietnam War and the protests, the Cold War. The space race, so, man on the moon, so countercultural product. Everything from we didn't start the fire. Uh, yeah, pretty much. All that stuff just happened in the decade prior to this. So we're, we're culturally just a mess of chaos, a mess of ideas. No one's quite sure what to believe currently. And does that does that affect Hollywood? Uh, probably. Um, we talked a little bit about new the new Hollywood era last time that it was about to happen. Um, and now we're in the thick of it. Movie studios have been growing desperate to attract younger audiences. At this point, they weren't sure what was going to attract movie studios. They're still yeah. kind of floundering. And so since younger audiences like the 20s and 30s, uh, they were really into art house movies and European and Asian films, studios gave more control to younger directors who had uh, innovative visions that differed from traditional Hollywood kind of narratives. So they're trying more ex experimental stuff more commonly. Yes, more widely. Uh, yeah. Giving, then again, auteur theory has really taken hold of this idea of like, let the directors dictate, like, they seem to have some idea of what they're doing. We don't really know what the audiences want right now. Let's see what the directors can come up with. Okay. The result of this is that you got some very, like I said, movies that differed a lot in the way they told stories than how Hollywood had previously talked about it. And I found this interesting in the section on New Hollywood on Wikipedia. Todd Berliner wrote about this period's unusual narrative practices, and he talked about it being like one of Hollywood's most significant transformations since the conversion of the sound. He outlines five principles that govern the narrative strategies characteristic of Hollywood films in the 1970s. One, 70s films show a perverse tendency to integrate in narrative incidental ways, story information, and stylistic devices counterproductive to the film's overt and essential narrative purposes. So they're just kind of counteracting their own purpose 
I mean, they're like double-minded in some ways. Yeah. That's what it sounds like. Yeah, thanks. That was a mouthful, so we probably yeah. need to paragraph yeah. these or paraphrase these. These are all very uh, literary. Uh, Hollywood filmmakers in the 1970s often situate their filmmaking practices between those of classic Hollywood and those of European and Asian art cinema. So it's kind of, kind of a middle ground between, yeah, if you ever see a, a European film from this period, well, I think we talked previously about France. There was a French new wave. Yeah. It's very different from what you can expect in Hollywood. And the Hollywood films of this era were kind of like a middle ground. Between, the amalgamation? Yeah, you could say that, according to Todd Berliner, anyway. Yeah. Uh, number three, 70s films prompt spectator responses more uncertain and discomforting than those of typical Hollywood cinema. More likely to have an ending where you're like, Huh, it's ambiguous. What do I take away from that? So it's not, they're not necessarily feel good movies. Not necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. 70s narratives place an uncommon emphasis on irresolution, particularly at the moment of climax or in epilogues, when more conventional Hollywood movies busy themselves tying up loose ends. Okay, so they're just like, we won't say anything, just feel uncomfortable when you leave. Yeah, this is really postmodern filmmaking, its birth, essentially. 70s cinema hinders narrative linearity and momentum and scuttles its potential to generate suspense and excitement. Again, these are not going to necessarily be all 70s movies, but according to the Todd Berliner here, there's a certain vibe that some of these will have. So a lot of the just traditional Hollywood is being jumbled up, the mindset in the yeah. movies. Because like during the studio system, you had a very like a specific guide, and it really is what helps them crank out so many movies per mm-hmm. year like i mean movies were a bit cheaper to make back then in some ways because you weren't as heavy relying on special effects and even your famous stars didn't have couldn't command their own salaries yeah. the studios told them what they would earn and all that kind of stuff so they generally cranked out a lot more movies now you can't get away with that yeah um and in the 70s was definitely a, a part of that 60s and 70s it was new hollywood era Pair all this, though, with the loosening standards of explicit content. Remember, we've ditched the production code and we've gone into the rating system that we currently use now. Yes. G, PG, and R. There was this before yeah. PG-13 that's at 80s. this point. Yeah, that's 80s, post-Indiana uh, Jones and the Temple of Doom. Thank you, Spielberg. I yeah, guess. <laughs> I guess. Um, but given that you do have uh, a lot more explicit content in movies, so you could either look at this as like a period of great cinematic freedom Or, like, I remember my mom talking about how, like, before Star Wars came out, there was, like, nothing in the theaters worth going to Mm -hmm. from a certain conservative perspective. So there is, in some ways, the the freedom to experiment, but a lot of the experimentation tend to be in the more brooding... Brooding or downright salacious mindset. Like, among the top ten movies of 1972, the year we're talking about... Among them, one of them is a pornographic film. Okay. So that gives you a show. I mean, that's kind of hard to imagine a pornographic film making the top 10 lists nowadays. I mean, in part because porn has gotten so cheap online. Yeah. Unfortunately. But I mean, but again, part of the movie culture this time is just yeah. that stuff. I mean, that would be unthinkable 20 years prior to this. Yes. So society has changed a lot. But particularly pertinent to today's movie, uh, disaster movies were a hit genre. It wasn't one of these like art house things. It was, it did become kind of blockbuster status. Yeah. Not blockbusters in the sense of how Star Wars would revolutionize. Well, Jaws and Star Wars yeah. would revolutionize what a blockbuster is. But the disaster movies were a hit genre during the 70s, starting with Airport in 1970. And that was such a huge success that sparked three sequels throughout the decade. 
Um, this movie, The Poseidon Adventure in 1972, would be the next huge success, and that would really solidify, okay, this is the trend. We're going to yeah. go with this. And movies that followed included The Towering Inferno, Earthquake, The Hindenburg, again, more airport sequels, and Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, a sequel to this movie, and many more. So I think it's just interesting that in a decade that is surrounded by tumult, confusion, and change, that disaster movies, this thing about like, tumult and change and how do you deal with it yeah how do you survive and basically just how do you survive how do you survive an apocalypse <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the destruction and all this stuff so i don't know i just find that interesting uh notable films in 1972 we always like to talk about these the top grossing film of the year was the godfather which no yeah, surprise there. that was one of our possible uh viewing movies yes yeah, so we did the godfather was of course one that i nominated only just because in case nick for some reason hadn't seen it i had actually seen that one you you had seen that so we we have to pick a movie that at least one of us has not seen mm-hmm. so the godfather didn't qualify the oscar win- winners of the year was for best picture the godfather for best director bob fosse for cabaret best actor marlon brando for the godfather and best actress lisa minnelli for cabaret so those are kind of the big two movies of the winning thing that it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. The other movie I had nominated for this week's episode was actually What's Up, Doc, which was not an Oscar winner. It was the third highest earning movie of the year after this movie, The Poseidon Adventure yeah. and The Godfather. And I just like it. It's a funny Barbara Streisand comedy. And I don't know, the cabaret has always given me bad vibes. Just the it, I know nothing about it, it. It seems a little off color from just the periphery. I could Apparently be wrong it is in that. the 70s. So Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I don't know. That's I haven't seen it, but I didn't really wasn't interested enough. I was like I, I was pretty sure we'd wind up with a Poseidon adventure yeah. anyway, which yeah. we did, so it doesn't really matter. The only other notable events that stuck out to me on Wikipedia is that this year, 1972, marks the film debut of producer Jerry Bruckheimer, as well as actors Jodie Foster, Samuel L. Jackson, Ben Kingsley, Steve Martin, and many others. So if you want to get the full list, go check out 1972 in film on Wikipedia. So this year we're talking about Poseidon Adventure. So what is this movie? I mean, we know it's a disaster movie, but like, give us some more details. What's the deal? Okay. Well, what's the buzz? What's the deal with the Poseidon Adventure? <laughs> okay. I'm not sure why I did a Jerry Seinfeld all of a sudden. <laughs> anyway, this is a movie directed by Ron O'Neill and stars Gene Hackman and Ernest Borgnine with a supporting cast, including Red Buttons, who I guess was a, uh, that was he's a celebrity from the that period. Okay. He okay. had done some TV shows. Is before that the? The Lonely Guy? The Lonely Bachelor okay. Guy, yeah. Red, yeah. His, his, the actor's actual name is Red Buttons. Huh. It also includes Shelley Winters and Leslie Nielsen. Yes, who was not in it often, though. No, he's, uh, he's not as a silly character as he would later become known as. He is a much straightforward character, the captain of the ship, actually, yep. the Poseidon. So what is this movie about? It is a disaster survival movie about a group of passengers trying to escape at a capsized ocean liner. Film's opening shows the ship traversing high waves and opening text informs us of the coming disaster. We're introduced to several passengers, including an agnostic minister, Reverend Frank Scott, played by Gene Hackman, a detective lieutenant, Mike Rogo, played by Ernest Bornine, and his wife, Linda, a teenage girl named Susan Shelby and her brother, younger brother, Robin, a retired couple off to meet their baby grandson, Manny and Belle Rosen, a love-shy bachelor named James Martin, and the ship's female singer, Nani Perry. 
During a New Year's Eve party, the captain is called to the bridge and informed about a nearby undersea earthquake. There is little the captain can do to avoid getting hit by a 90-foot tidal wave, which slams into the boat and turns it upside down. The survivors gather themselves and are convinced, slash cajoled, by Reverend Scott to climb up to the engine room in the hull of the ship, where the hull is reportedly thin enough to cut through. They'll have to traverse through the upside-down, burning and flooding bowels of the ship to get there, all while battling their own frayed nerves and each other's egos. How many will survive the trip? Boom, boom, boom. Is the question. Yes. Will some will survive the trip? Well, the opening text informs us that some will, but we aren't told who. Exactly. So we won't tell you who, listeners. Uh, if you are really curious to find out who survives, you'll have to see the movie for yourselves. Yes. But this movie is in color. The screen ratio is the widescreen. That's the wider version of widescreen to 2.35 over 1, which is actually wider than a version that's on YouTube. Oh, weird. We watched this on uh, an official YouTube channel, mind you. You know, you can buy and rent movies yeah. on YouTube. But for some reason, their, their presentation is feels like the 16 by 9 screen, but there's a wider version. So, like, it doesn't matter a whole lot, but, like, I did compare it on certain shots mm -hmm. where, like, they have all the survivors basically in a row in a row yeah and the the version we watched would cut off one of them they wouldn't all oh, fit okay. in the screen okay so that's kind of i kind of was bummed when i found that out because i wanted i didn't know that was a thing yeah <laughs> yeah i mean i guess it's kind of like you know back when uh they were introducing widescreen stuff on dvds mm -hmm. and were like oh, we don't want to have to have the black bars so we'll do that well they still do that nowadays it's just sometimes they don't they don't tip their hand so the difference between like the the 16 by 9 and the wider screen is again like the wider frame gives you more of a panoramic sort of vision. Mm -hmm. But like the 16 by 9, the original Avengers movie is actually filmed in 16 by 9. Well, not quite 16 by 9, but the one that's closer to that, whatever that's called. In part because they really wanted to emphasize the Hulk's height in oh, that. Okay. Which, you know, it's, it's kind of like still photography. If you want to emphasize the vertical space, you turn your camera on its, you know, yeah. vertically. Uh, if you want to emphasize horizontal space, you do a landscape. And even though, thankfully, we don't actually have films that are, are filmed completely vertically. Not like, like uh, holding your camera the wrong way sort of thing. Exactly, yeah. right. But there are some ratios that, that some filmmakers use to emphasize the vertical, vertical oh, space. Interesting. Um, in this case, the interesting thing about the way we watched it is it wound up making everything look a little bit more crammed, mm -hmm. which kind of fits in for it, the story. It does, it does fit for the story, yeah. Yeah, but I still, I would like to have seen the original ratio version but anyway that's details this movie is about 117 minutes or one hour 57 minutes so just under two hours also i do want to mention here since this is the first film we've had where the rating system was in place yeah we're done with the studio system or the the haze, haze code. code thank you yes yep. i think i might have mentioned previously that the mpaa rating system when it was imp implemented in 1968 was what we have today mm -hmm. um it was a little different. I was looking it up. I found out the ratings from 1968 to 1970 were G, M, R, and X. Okay. So the M was kind of in a place of PG, but people found that a little confusing. Like, what does M mean? Yeah. So it changed in 1970 to G, G, P, R, and X. And then in 1972, it changed to G, P, G, R, and X. Oh, okay. So. And this is technically rated PG. Yes, Correct. Nowadays, it would probably be a PG-13. It just kind of feels like one. Yeah, just some of the some of the subject matter, some of the tension, some of the... some of the, Yeah, the effects the, would be like for intense action or yeah. that kind of stuff. So that's probably where this one would rank nowadays. 
The score is by none other than John Williams himself. Which we, we caught at the end. And there's actually a lot of places where there's not a score in this movie, I, I noticed. There's a lot of silence and just... Let the sound effects do the, the sound work. effects work. And it, it works. I mean, that works. You wouldn't want tons of music, but... Yeah. Yeah. It, it has does, a lot of brass, though, so it's John Williams. True. <laughs> well, it does feel like early John Williams to me. At least I didn't really pick out a, a strong theme. No, I didn't really. Not, at least I wasn't paying attention either. But yeah. I didn't notice one. So, I don't know. I mean... This movie was nominated for several Oscars. Let me see if uh, score was one of them. Oh, yes. John Williams was nominated for Best okay. Original Dramatic Score, so but he did not win. But I Fo- guess Godfather score might have won. Yeah, probably did. I, I, I mean, I, I just don't know that theme. Yeah, so. I, didn't, I didn't look it up. Should we talk, then move on to why this... Yeah, why, why do we care? I mean, we know Star... Well, not Star, but at least was a big part of the disaster film craze. But what else is it known for? Well, it was, like I said, the psych- second highest grossing film of the year, according to some lists. I'm not going to provide numbers on this anymore because I, every time I try to look into it, I like I find different numbers on different websites. Weird. Yeah, so I'm not sure what that is all about. But um, it was generally successful with critics. It currently has an 80% on Rotten Tomatoes. How do they do that on Rotten Tomatoes with old movies? Do they just go and like It's older stuff. stuff? They'll, they'll, they'll pull it from older websites. Okay. Like that 80% really only represents like 20 reviews. Okay, I was going, okay. As opposed to like 120 some. Nowadays. That, that like anyone has movies. a website now. Yeah, yeah <laughs> practically. Although, if you look at some of the critics' remarks, they kind of sound like backhanded compliments. <laughs> they're more some of these are great. Yeah, know? some they're more impressed by the visuals than the actual storytelling. Roger Ebert said, "It's the kind of movie you know is going to be awful, and yet somehow you got to see it, right?" <laughs> <laughs> I, I've been to a number of those movies. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and then uh, Charles Champlin, Champlin. Man, I'm sure he got sick. <laughs> got <laughs> puns. To, puns off his name a lot. Anyway, he's a critic for Los Angeles Times said, The special effects, the genuinely remarkable production values, and technical wizardries sweep everything else aside. Are the characters as gaudy and thin as cereal boxes? Is the dialogue banal and shrill? Is the moralizing heavy-handed and, re- and relentless? Is the hokum a bit thick, even in the context of a showmanship special? Well, yes. But who cares? <laughs> <laughs> it's very backhanded, but... Well, we'll get to how we think about it, but there is a certain amount of just like, ah, it's fun. Yeah, it's just a popcorn movie. Yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a special effects extravaganza. Yeah. That said, it was nominated for nine Oscars, including Best Supporting Actress for Shelley Winters, who plays the uh, overweight lady in this. Which I would say was probably one of the more um, balanced acting jobs. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say so. She's, well, I was reading about her. She had an interesting career before this. I saw one person say, I'm not, I don't have details to back this up, but that she had struggled with her weight. And so when she actually, this role actually called her to put it on, she was happy to do so. Oh, okay. Yeah. And then couldn't really get it off till much later in life. Oh, okay. <laughs> so <laughs> interesting. Part of the job, I guess. Mrs. Rosen, we have to go right now. Mr. Scott, a fat woman like me can't climb. I'll wait here with the others. Now, I'm afraid I can't let you do that. Listen to him, Bell. There's something different up there than there is from down here? Yes. Life. Life is up there. And life always matters very much. Doesn't it? Yes. All right, so I'll climb. Um, but anyway, it only won for Best Original Song, and it got a Special Achievement Award for Visual Effects. I think it was before Visual Effects had a category of its own. Oh, okay. 
So how did it make a difference since then? I mean, it's 72. It has 50 years to make some sort of difference. Right. Well, like we said, it had inspired many more of the disaster movies of the 70s, including a sequel called Beyond the Poseidon Adventure, which I guess they had the... This movie was adapted from a book, and mm-hmm. they had the author write a sequel so that they could make a movie off of that. Interesting. And I guess it has something to do with like other passengers on the boat and, and how they escaped. Oh, interesting. Which I think is a neat idea. It is kind of a cool idea. Which is better than, I guess, one pitched story was be like the survivors of this story were on a train to go uh, deal with a lawsuit from this case and then there was a earthquake or something and the train got blocked in a tunnel and like okay that's that's a little far-fetched i've heard stuff like that before but yeah the same survivors in a new disaster but there also been two remakes there was a tv movie with the same name the poseidon adventure in 2005 and the theatrical movie poseidon in 2006 huh so uh, I'm not sure what was in the water. They decided to bake both of them within a year of each other. That's weird, yeah. Maybe it was just far enough after the massive success of Titanic, and, they thought they'd be safe. And maybe that's maybe that's why I've been sick in my head, too. Just I saw the names at some point growing up. Oh, yeah, yeah that, that could be, too. Neither the sequel nor the remakes were very successful, though. We'll mm-hmm. put that out there. I didn't see the Wikipedia, and I didn't really see in other places uh, much... They didn't really quote any direct inspirations yeah. or things, but I feel like you can see this in other kind of contained space survival yeah. stories. I think even Alien, which I think is 1979, if I remember right. Mm-hmm. I was That's I thought it. of Alien some in this and that you're in a contained space, in this, yeah. that case, a spaceship trying to survive, a monster in that case. I think also several episodes of Doctor Who. Yeah, every once in a while you're just stuck in a location, there's something happening, people are dying. I mean, there's a, l- a literal titanic episode which you know that titanic is in, sp- in space yeah but it's more you said the other day it felt like it felt like this one yeah, yeah because it's much more than the actual titanic movie but yeah i mean this has i'm it wasn't the first disaster movie but it does seem like it has a lot of the essential dna yeah. of disaster movie that gets repeated over and over again yeah. whether it caused it it is still certainly a progenitor <laughs> it informed this kind of movie yeah. going forward or this kind of storytelling i guess you know talking about doctor who that's tv not film but you know tv episodes borrow a lot from film yeah. as well it's still a visual medium interestingly uh, paul gallica who is the author of the original novel he did an uh, essay about this the success of this sort of thing he coined the term arc movie for this genre i like i really like that terminology yeah it's like noah's ark except as a contained space in the midst of a disaster. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of drama we had in that, which is why it gets repeated over and over again, even after this. For sure. Okay, for sure. so how, how did, is there on any lists? Well, it made the American Film Institute's list of 100 thrills, 100 thrilling movies, and it just made that list at number 90. Okay. Although, interestingly enough, the official Razzie movie guide <laughs> listed it as one of the most enjoyably bad movies ever made. I think it was a list of 100 of those. Interesting. And so it's like, okay. Well, there you go. Again, another backhanded compliment. It's in one of those Venn diagrams. It's like both on the AFI and in the Razzies thing. The best and the worst. Yeah. <laughs> it just has that space. What is it, look at? I never saw anything like it. An enormous wall of water coming towards us. In the early morning hours of New Year's Eve, Gene Hackman, Ernest Borgnine, Red Buttons, Shelley Winters, and Leslie Nielsen were aboard the SS Poseidon when it was hit by a 90-foot tidal wave. Oh, my God. And capsized. The Poseidon Adventure. The most exciting escape adventure of our time. Follow me! It took the lives of the 1,400 people on board and changed the lives of the few who would survive. Climbing to another deck will kill you all! And sitting on our butts is not going to save us either! So I guess that comes to the main point. 
What do we think about this thing? Yes. Had you heard about much? You'd heard the name, and that's about I, it? Well, I believe my mom had talked about it at some point. Like, she would re- reference it occasionally. Like, I think she had seen it way back when. And okay. So I just knew it was this disaster movie. I didn't know much more than that, but just that it's kind of this archetypal disaster movie was how it stood in my brain. Yeah, that's probably about where it was for me. It was just in the waters. <laughs> uh, no pun intended, or was it? Yeah, I, I don't really have any strong memories attached to hearing about this one. I probably was more aware of it. By the time those remakes, when like the Poseidon, I was yeah. definitely trying to read Roger Ebert in the mm-hmm. newspaper whenever I could. So I probably became aware of it then, but it was like, that's really not a genre I'm interested in. So put it it's on the back burner. Those disaster movies flared up again, you know, that's right true. around that time, probably when they were making those remakes, right before actually. Yeah, yeah, possibly. I mean, there were some disaster movies, there was a bit of a resurgence of disaster movies in the 90s. Yeah. The 70s disaster, they it, it was overplayed by the end of the decade. So you didn't really, it wasn't as big of a genre by the time you got to the 80s. Yeah. But then when you get to like Independence Day yeah, exactly. and all the other Roland and Emmerich movies, yeah. <laughs> you kind of revived it. All right, well, let's see what we thought when we first saw it a week ago. Okay. So I'm not a huge fan of disaster movies usually, but I do enjoy all the characters in this I thought were very strong. There was not as much spectacle as I was expecting in some ways. It was more of a, a survival movie. I guess a lot of escape movie or disaster movies have that aspect to it, but but yes, a very interesting, suspenseful journey through the bowels of a ship. Upside down ship. Uh, upside down ship. Um, yeah, solid uh, disaster movie. Yeah, it's interesting characters, not as not as stereotypical as you get in some of the later ones or some ones I've seen. Tried to ask some interesting thematic questions, but I really don't like anything they said about it, which is unfortunate. <laughs> that was terrifying. <laughs> I kind of hated it. <laughs> That's all you have to say? Yes. Uh, okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> I like disaster movies. I found it interesting. I'm not sure what it is I like about them. I guess just the, it's just interesting to me to see how people get through them and what belief systems come out through it. I thought it was interesting to see um, this pastor who from the beginning didn't seem like a great pastor. And even at the end, I wasn't certain he was. He was a, a good moral guy. I mean, he got them through. But, yeah, as a pastor, I wouldn't have wanted him pastoring my church. (laughs) So that was last week, and now we're... Now we're here. We're here, and we're trying to figure out, okay, what do we still think about this thing? What What was good about it? You know, it's interesting. I talked about the spectacle not being as big as I expected, but thinking back about it, it I did enjoy the visuals of everything. The, I mean, the environment was very well imagined. It was like the convinc the convincingly did the whole upside down shit. I mean, when it was first turning over, is a little yeah. I couldn't wonky, quite but. buy the. I felt like the scene where like the ship is capsizing and you see all the people like flying backwards. I knew it was supposed to be serious and awful, but it looked goofy to it, me. It did look, but after that, yeah, all the scenes were it was all like a mechanical and enclosed, and you and fire, yeah, and fire, and, and, and water all over. Yeah, the place. there was a lot of the atmosphere was well done. 
I guess. Yes. yes. Yeah. Especially since at this time, this is all visual effects. I mean, I think practical a lot of this practical effects. Yeah. yeah. I don't know that a lot of this would have been faked in any way. And it's not like even when we did a trip to the moon where you had like these special camera yeah. effects that created. No, I think it's all real. Areas. And someone's big areas. Yeah. When I found out that Shelley Winters was a um, an actual movie actress, I thought, oh, they must have used stunt women to do some of the swimming scenes that she has. Yeah. Apparently, she actually really she actually learned a lot about how to hold her breath for a long period of time. Oh. So I don't know if that's her for that entire sequence, but it must be for some of it, which and, is and, impressive. And again, we're not spoiling much, but there is a scene when they're swimming in water and holding breaths and stuff. And that's always effectively suspenseful. And Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Both visuals and suspense, I thought, were pretty well, you know, even though, like we said, given the opening title text and also just disaster movie conventions in general, you figure that some of them are going to die. Some of them are going to make it all the way through. Because if none of them made it through, then no one would care. Well, except for Cloverfield. Well, okay, fair point. (laughs) No, but generally, you expect someone to make it, but also you know someone's not because that's the whole tension, like... Or yeah. my character's going to live. Yeah. And honestly, you don't really... This isn't one of those movies where you want to see someone die, necessarily. No, no, no one's, like, super annoying. I mean, someone can get kind of abrasive, but you, you want them all to live. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for as much as, like, <laughs> a lot of the movie is uh, Gene Hackman and Ernest Bornine yelling at each other. <laughs> There's a lot of yelling. Where in the hell were you? What's that supposed to mean? I told you to keep everybody rounded up! Well, Mr. Rogo did the best he could you to try to, to get... You defend it. me. Now look, preacher, I've had just about enough out of you. Who do you think you are, God himself? He was hurt. He needed your protection. All right, so he was hurt. The boat tilted and he fell. The shaft blew up and he's dead. And that's it. Or do you want to make something more out of it? But you can totally see where they're coming from. I guess we mentioned it in our initial thoughts, but I do think... Disaster movies, you're always going to start at the beginning with a setting up the characters. That's just yeah. what you have to do. Uh-huh. But I thought at least they were different people than I thought I would normally get in a certain... I mean, you got hmm. the kids, but okay, you always have the kids. Sure. I don't know. I just felt like they were relatively interesting for what what did one reviewer say. You know, the cardboard boxes, but they were relatively unique, I thought. Yeah, I did think as much as like... It sounds like we're huge fans of this. I'm not necessarily a huge fan of no, this, we'll but I, I would say I'm not quite as I won't be quite as harsh as that critic was because yeah. yeah, I've seen characters in disaster stories that are way more stereotypical than these were. I felt uh, that's that's what I felt. Yeah, I mean, cards on the table. Well, at least I was sort of like after watching it. Was, it was a fun popcorn movie, but a little forgettable. Yeah, I, think. I mean, the thing that I think we did find the most unsatisfying was the Reverend character that we talked about in the instant reactions. So the, the Reverend is agnostic. Yeah, he's agnostic in the sense of not he's not unsure God exists. He doesn't ever say that. It's the agnostic who says God is too busy to help to do anything with us. You have to deal with it yourself. God help likes those who help themselves. Therefore, don't pray to God to solve your problems. Pray to that part of God within you. Have the guts to fight for yourself. God wants brave souls. He wants winners, not quitters. If you can't win, at least try to win. What resolution should we make for the new year? Resolve to let God know that you have the guts and the will to do it alone. Resolve to fight for yourselves and for others and for those you love. That part of God within you will be fighting with you. All the way. 
nonsense. And we watch it and thought, oh, okay, well then he'll be there'll be a learning point where he'll learn to trust God. And yeah, I mean that. I mean not just from a. Um, I mean, I guess this is a choice from a Christian perspective. That's very unsatisfying. Yeah. From a certain narrative perspective, it could also be seen as unsatisfying because I feel that the Reverend character doesn't really have a character arc. No. He's never wrong in what he's saying and what they should nope. do. He never learns anything over the course. Like he basically ends the movie pretty much with the same opinion that he started with. Except more bitter about it. Except more bitter about it. It's it's kind of as if in the movie Signs, the Mel Gibson character never had a redemptive turnaround. Yeah. A, a moment of redemptive faith. It's a similar character, but he never gets that in this well, movie. I, I wanted to give a, the movie a little bit of credit for, you know, in theory, asking some big questions about where is God in a disaster? Uh-huh. I don't know if I'd ever seen that as directly stated in some of the ones I've seen. Maybe I'm just forgetful. But it's it feels like very 70s, at least in the way you laid it out and being like, uh, you yeah. know, we're going to just kind of leave it unsettled. Yeah. I feel like there's also this undercurrent with the other passengers, the, the idea that like the Reverend is so forceful is like, you got to just try hard enough and really yeah. believe. And then there are other passengers who kind of are, it's implied that they go to their doom because they just follow the lead of some other person who doesn't know what they're talking about. As if, like they, they pass that one group of people yeah. who are just like kind of following one of the, the ship officials, the doctor, I think. Yeah. Kind of like zombies, just mm-hmm. like, okay, whatever. And so there's no like self-will, but I'm like, but this group of passengers is all kind of being forced up by this reverend. It, it's very, I mean, it, there's like a thematic moment, uh, not, not moment, but a, a theme. Some of it's like rebellion is good. You know, like he rebels yeah. against God mm-hmm. and just make your own way. Very, um. The ship well, officials don't know what they're talking about. It's like Nietzsche, you know, just like, I'm the Superman, just make it by your own willpower uh-huh. sort of thing, which is. Kind of a downer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, at least from my point of view, it's kind of downer. And I think even from a non-Christian point of view, it's just sort of like, lot, you know, they try, like a lot of disaster movies do, life is important and it's always worth it, but it's just surrounded by death and cynicism. Yeah. Generally. Not everyone, but generally. Yeah, yeah. That's the way out. That's our only chance. Don't listen to him! We've got to stay here till help arrives. Help from where? From the captain? He's dead. Everybody's dead who was above us before the ship turned over. Because now they're underneath us, under the water. There's nobody alive but us. And nobody's going to help us except ourselves. It's up to each one of you. It's up to all of us, together. Now please, for God's sake, come with me. I order you not to go. He knows nothing about this ship. The person Why don't you there. mind your own business? It's easier as an audience to ask certain questions that maybe a passenger wouldn't. Yeah. But some of the things I would was really questioning, like, so a lot of the, the promo pictures of the Poseidon Adventure show the ship kind of like at an angle. Yeah. Which I think is kind of sketchy with like, because they never are really climbing upwards at an angle. Like if the ship was literally like at this diagonal mm-hmm. aspect thing with the the back of the ship being up at, out of the water. Then it would move that way because you want to climb up. Yeah, you would just naturally like, that's the way up. Yeah. But like everyone was acting as if it was on a horizontal thing. Didn't make you wonder. It's like, well, how do you know that that's the best way to go? Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I mean, I think that was a legitimately good question. And somehow the Reverend just knew based on listening to one kid that that was the correct way. Yeah. It would have helped in my mind if there had been some other like visual cue for like, 
no, this is yeah. clearly the, the way. But then the problem is then all the passengers would be going that way. I mean, do you think that in some ways Poseidon Adventure holds all the normal pros and cons of the disaster genre? I mean, the, yeah, there's there's a certain amount of that. I mean, even though some people survive at the end, I feel like the end of a disaster movie kind of feels like a hollow victory. Mm-hmm. Even when some people survive, because I mean, you lose so many people along the way. And as an audience, you either feel for that or you're like oh well i knew someone was gonna die yeah and i guess there's well and without spoiling who lives or not there's at least one i guess there's two of the passengers who kind of have like okay after they get out they'll have this different than what they or at least something to look forward to okay but it's so downplayed like there's nothing well there's hardly any epilogue yeah yeah which happens sometimes you know you just you get out and that's the end yeah. So which also is like, there's not a whole lot of healing that you get to see afterwards. Yeah. So I guess anything else about, I mean, we're, we're kind of like, uh, it's it's okay. It's okay. Anyway, so do we have any more highlights that we want to share here? I think that covers it. I think I'm ready to go on to questions. Let's if you do are. it. Yes. We're sinking and nothing's going to keep us from drowning. Keep moving. It's right, Mrs. Rogo. There are air pockets all over this ship. Air pockets? Yes. Just because that deck flooded doesn't mean this one will. How long will we stay afloat? Long enough. The Andrea Doria stayed afloat 10 hours before she sank. You see, Nani, everything is going to be all right. We've got a long time to go. Come on, come on, keep moving, keep moving. So, uh, do you have any questions for me? Uh, sure. You're not a disaster movie fan. What would make a meaningful disaster movie? Hmm. There's a movie I'm trying to remember that's based on a true story. The ones that I feel like that are more inspirational in tone, there's some movie about like a group of sailors from a submarine or a some sort of sunken okay. ship movie in like during World War II. Okay. That they escape on a, on a raft and they're living out on the in the Paci- middle of the Pacific Ocean for like mm-hmm. several days and it's really it, I guess it's more survival than disaster. It's similar. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean this and this is kind of like is disaster, but it's also survival thing. It has a similar kind of... So there's more inspiration than we had here. Yeah, yeah. Like, even though not everyone lives out of that, the ones who do, it's more a feel-good, like, I'll be able to go on and live my life, and I'll never forget the people I lived with who helped me get to this point. And So it's really a tonal shift is what we need, you think? I guess so. Yeah, I guess so. It's less of like, oh, life is full of danger and is, you know, do the wrong thing and it'll kill you. And more emphasis on humans banding together and being good to each other. So kind of like... Despite um, circumstances. What was the one movie uh, Zach loved back? It wasn't quite a disaster movie. With an asteroid coming oh, out. Uh, Armageddon? Armageddon. Not quite a disaster. You know, it was a very much like inspirational. They band together and go, and some people die trying to get rid of this. Yeah, yeah. yeah okay. So yeah, I, th- I think it's a very tonal difference. And... Maybe some disaster movies are going for that and don't quite get there. Like they wind up being more downbeat than, mm-hmm. yeah. Okay. So I guess that'd be the difference for me. So, okay, here's my question for yeah. you. How much time passes during this movie? Well, that's a good question because... It's a leading question, I realize, but I yeah. thought I'd let you explore it. Okay, it's nighttime. It's midnight when they get hit, or right around midnight, because it's New Year's Eve. Uh-huh. And it's morning, or at least it's daytime when they get out. Right. So it's got to be at least... 12 hours. Seems, yeah. Approximate. Maybe a little later, but... Maybe, maybe a little later. I mean, if it's midnight, it's not necessarily like noon when they get out, so... No, it could be morning. It could be less than 12, but yeah, the, because... The curious thing I realized about this, and maybe this is a follow-up question, yeah. but like, what did they do during all that time? I feel like they t- took longer than you, than is shown getting out of the ballroom. Yeah. I think that's a large chunk of time, but yeah, 
That was after that they just keep moving. Like like at least the way it's shown, it shouldn't be more than about three four hours. Yeah, but it seems like they're constantly on the move the whole thing. So when I started thinking, it was like, wait a minute. Yeah, <laughs> they must have been in that ballroom a long time. But I guess you could say. I mean, depending where you are in the world, it could be five, six o'clock when they get out. It's light enough for that. You could do five, six hours. You might yeah. be able to make it work. Yeah. The swimming scene, there's a lot of talking and thinking and doing and waiting. Planning. Yeah, that's that's fair. So okay. That's it. Yeah. You don't even think of time half the time in movies like No, that. you really that's you really good. don't. But I, I started thinking about like the beginning and the end of their yeah. story. It's like, wait a minute. <laughs> anyway, so what's your Here's next my silly question. question. So how many, if you would redo this, how many hundreds of millions of dollars of CGI could you cram into this movie? <laughs> 200 million. Like, okay. I don't think there's ever a question of how much could you spend in a movie. <laughs> no, but I'm like, where would you put the CGI? You would probably have more scenes of the outside of the ship. Like, it flipping over would take like 15 minutes. Yeah. Pr- <laughs> <laughs> really expand. Slow motion. Slow motion. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's some scenes of the outside, but not a lot. And I feel like a modern movie with more CGI would do a lot more. Yeah. Uh, especially at the end of this. Apparently, there originally was going to be a, a shot of like more helicopters and rescue oh, okay. so things they around. Done that it. was CGI. Yeah, probably. But they ran out of money. So they really just did the one helicopter from like a low angle. So you yeah. couldn't see around the ship very much. <laughs> But I just think nowadays we cram these things full, and this one doesn't, which is kind of neat. Uh-huh. But it keeps it from being overblown, I guess. That's true. That's true. Okay, so my my second question yeah. for you: If you were to include a '70s celebrity in this movie, oh. who would it be? I don't know '70s celebrities super well. That's that lost decade in my brain. Uh-huh. Or how about a, a guest from the Muppet Show? Okay, guest from Muppet Show. I know you haven't most seen of the, it all. I mean, most of the ones are 80s-ish, but yeah. Honestly, I just want Leslie Nielsen in it as a, as a, like the whole time, and it's funny. It's, it is like funny him mode. yelling with Ernest Borgnine be great. You know, it's, it's interesting. He was actually almost a decade still from his comedic career really taking root, because that really started with Airplane, which was at the end of the 70s, after ha- there have been he, so many airport yeah, movies. He, he just plays a straight, a funny straight man really well. Yeah, that's true. So, uh, or... Like, say we throw 80s, let's just throw Weird Al in the whole thing and see what happened. <laughs> we already did a Weird Al, Weird Al okay, answer fine. earlier. Oh, this. did you? Oh, you did, didn't you? And uh, back in the Horse Feathers episode. Oh, Horse Oh, that's why it was on my brain. Um, then skip that one. No, but you mentioned that it was his year of his film career debut. I think Steve Martin would be a blast, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> okay, that Steve works. Martin, couldn't you see Steve Martin and um, Gene Hackman just like... Yelling at each other. Yeah. <laughs> I think it would be hilarious. Okay. Yeah, I can see that. Actually, Steve Martin would have done a really good job for, as um, Red Buttons. Oh, okay. Although in that period of his career, he was more the sarcastic kind of character. Okay. So I'm not sure that would be the route you would want to go for that character. It would have been pretty funny, though. <laughs> <laughs> you know, just get over it. I, Excuse me. It, it is funny, though, that there is actually like almost no humor in this. Like, mm. There's not much comedic relief. And I just feel like modern, like, I don't know. I feel like if it was made modern, there'd be a, a little more comedic relief. I'm not sure that's good or bad, but yeah. I feel like there would have been more. Yeah, that is an interesting choice on you bringing it up. It's probably just also the brooding 70s. Yeah, <laughs> it's probably true. All right, so Tim, verdict. Is it worth it? Maybe. I, I, yeah, I'm... Honestly, of, of all the movies we watched so far this season, this one feels to me the most skippable. Yes, it feels the most popcorny. Like, if you like disaster movies, you haven't seen it. Eh, why, I mean, it's not it's not bad to watch. 
Yeah. It's not, if you're if you're a big fan of the genre, too. yeah, yeah. There's other movies you could watch. <laughs> yeah. If you, if you're a fan of the genre, honestly, my sister Joanna, who was obsessed with Titanic in that period of time after it came out, mm-hmm. she would probably enjoy it. She she into that kind of thing. Otherwise, yeah, it's it, it's it's forgettable. Yeah, it's. Not, I wouldn't try to push anyone away who really wanted to watch it, but I wouldn't no. really push anyone. Yeah, yeah, I don't think it's bad, but I don't think it's great. Yeah. Okay, right. which I think gets reflected on uh, the... It's AFI and, Ra- and Razzie. So. Yeah, <laughs> there yeah. you go. There you That is 1972. Next week, we will be heading into the decades we begin to understand. Yes. Uh, For first and experience. What are we watching in 1982? Blade Runner. Blade Runner. uh, A quintessential sci-fi noir movie that would inspire a lot of the look of science fiction movies in the years to come. All right. So thank you for listening. Uh, please visit our website at derailedtrainsofthought.com. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, etc. You can leave a comment, too, on our website. If you uh, have an opinion on any of these uh, movies we've been talking about, let us know which ones that you liked and which ones you hated. Hopefully not hated, because most of these have been pretty good. Yeah, but, I think they're all watchable. But we'd love to hear your opinions <laughs> on um, on which is your favorite so far. Sounds good. All right. With that, this has been Nick. And this is Tim. Adios. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.